morning, everyone. Uh, you can open your Bibles with me, Psalm 12. This is our last sermon of 12 in Psalms 1 through 12. Um, you know, as I was reflecting on this kind of spiritual journey that we've been on, I, I couldn't help but think of a pastime that Katie and I enjoy, which is hiking. Um, you know, we have really just kind of grown to love hiking because of, for many reasons, but one of them is just enjoying God's beautiful creation as you hike. Uh, interestingly enough, I've shared some of my adventures, but if you see Katie after service, make sure you go and grab her and ask her about the time that we heard a dreadful noise on a hike, and she left me for dead. It was so funny. She looked at me. She saw the weak link in the herd. She went running for her life and, like, didn't even look back. I'll let your imagination run wild with the rest of the story. Uh, Psalm 1 through 12, I want to suggest, is kind of like the three phases that you take when you go on a hike. And perhaps you know the phases. You have the ascent, you have the peak, and then you have the descent. Now, the ascent is special because if it's, for example, a new trail, you get to kind of explore the newness of the world that you are walking in. You'll see different features and dimensions of the trail that stand out to you. They're breathtaking. You're like, oh boy, this is so neat. The peak, I want to suggest, is the payday, the reward. You get to the top of the mountain, you gain a new perspective of the world that you had not seen before. As we were making our way through Psalms 1 through 12, I believe the peak was Psalm 8. We heard the words after navigating the muckiness, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So for a moment in this hike, we ascended and we saw the wonder of God and also the dignity that God has bestowed upon every single person. It doesn't matter who you are, or where you've come from, or what abilities you possess in this world. You are inherently of value and worth because the image of God resides in you. The descent is a little different. The descent is the part of the trail where, especially if you have to backtrack in a hike, you are revisiting sites that you've already seen before. It's the end of the road, if you will. Sometimes you revisit the site and you notice something different about the waterfall or the rock feature that you saw. Sometimes you feel like a bittersweet feeling. You feel a lot of pleasure because you're like, wow, I really accomplished something today. But you also experience the letdown. I'm leaving. And the only thing that I can kind of bring with me at this point of this hike are my memories. And so here we are at the end of the road, the end of the trail, and there's one last insight that I want us to see in the text in Psalm 12. And it's this. The muck can never soil the truth. And oh boy, do we need to hear that today. 
Because when you live in a mucky world, it just seems like the muckiness taints everything. It touches into everything. Everything gets a little piece of the soil. But here, we're going to see something that is foundational to the character of God. Something in this mucky world that remains unsoiled. And that something is the truth. The truth can never be defiled. It always remains pure and faultless. And that's why we can trust God. So let's pick up Psalm 12, and we're going to look at the first 12 verses as we navigate this. Psalm 12, the choir master, according to the Sheminith, the Psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us. Now I want to suggest that as we get into David's heart and mind this morning, that we are in the place of extreme pessimism. It seems to me like David is come to an end of himself. And he's looking out at the world and he's kind of like, I feel like the last man standing right now. Look at the words that he uses. The godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished from among the children of man. And maybe you can relate to David. Maybe you have been in a place where you're trying to do God, uh, things God's way, where you're trying to keep your head up and live beyond the muck. But as you kind of look to your right and your left, you're like, is anyone coming along with me right now? Now, Scripture shows us that this can happen in a life of faith. Um, you think about the story of Elijah, for example. First Kings chapter 19, if you haven't read this one before, you should go check that out today. You might recall that Elijah descended into a deep well. He was on the run for his life. He got to this place where he's talking to God and he's praying and he's like, I, even only I, am left. No one else cares. No one else is worshiping God. It's just me. Remember, just because you feel something doesn't make it true. <laughs> I mean, God speaks to Elijah and he corrects him and he says, Elijah, listen, it is kind of bad out there. I'm not going to lie right now. But there are still 7,000 knees who have not bent to Baal. And I've got my people. And we need to remember that as we're navigating the muck. God always has his people. He's always working. He's always advancing his purposes in this world. Never then given to extreme pessimism. 
I don't care what the news cycle is saying or what the economic outlook looks like, or maybe you're a Christian and you've been walking with God for quite some time and you're thinking about church in the yesteryear when it seemed like churches were more full back then. And you're thinking, well, maybe people are turning away from God in mass, or maybe you're going through a personal crisis in your life. Never allow the outlook to diminish your faith in God's power and purposes in this world. But let's be honest, the outlook can sometimes look pretty bad. David's looking at his society and he's seeing it totally soiled, totally stained with deception. And he's seeing the corrosive effects of these lies all around him. So, We've talked about this idea as we've made our way through the Psalms that words do have power. Words can be used as weapons. We talked about attitudes becoming words, words becoming behavior. And once again, we see this idea in the text. It uses this metaphor about deception. Did you notice that one? With a double heart, they speak. Now, when you and I tend to think of the heart, we think of the heart as being the place where I feel things. But in the Hebrew mind, when they thought of the heart, they thought of the heart as being the place where your true personality, your true self resides. In other words, your inner thought world. So this metaphor, this double-hearted person, is a person who thinks two things at the same time. What do I want, and what do I need to say to get it? It's just outright deception, outright lying. If you look at a proverb like Proverbs chapter 6, Scripture says God hates this uh, practically the most out of everything, of all the things that he hates. Look at what it says in Proverbs 6. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now get this. I kind of look at this and think, isn't it a little strong to place a lying tongue next to hands that shed innocent blood? But listen to what this rabbi says. The origin of all conflict between me and my fellow men is that I do not say what I mean and that I do not do what I say for this confuses and poisons again and again. When you really think about it with this idea of words, it could be true that more violence has been perpetrated, originated through words than through orders to throw down bombs. Words are harmful. And we don't always see it because we're numb to it. We live in a world where it's okay to deceive. Deception happens all the time. You believe your truth. You stick with what you think is right. But it's harmful. It makes me think of um, something 
that took place in the, my life, in my, my mama White's life. Uh, if you're from like the South, particularly like West Virginia, your, your grandmother, you call her Mama. So I had two Mamas growing up. I had a Mama Wheeler, a Mama White. And when I was in college, my Mama White received a phone call from me. The phone call went like this. I'm in Canada right now. And I really need your help. Uh, things went really bad up here. And you, you know how it is if you're a grandparent. You get a call like that and your heart just sinks. And then I continue and I say, I need you to bail me out of jail. I got into a bar fight. I'm beat up pretty bad. I'm depressed. I'm alone. Help me. Can you wire $1,500 to here in Canada? Now, Mama gets in her car. She doesn't think twice about it. She goes and she depletes her savings account. Now, unfortunately, and you probably already guessed this about this story, I wasn't in Canada making a phone call to my grandmother. Obviously, someone else is making this phone call posing to be me. Now, I could see where she might believe the story because I was kind of an impulsive guy back then. I mean, I could see plenty of scenarios where friends would be like, hey, let's get in a car and just drive to Canada right now. I hope that I wouldn't have gotten in a bar fight. But nonetheless, deception used to harm her. If you know anything about her story and her history, you would think, boy, that's just awful that someone would do that to her. Uh, when she was a younger woman, my mom and her brother and sister, 13, 11, 9, right around that age, they were left fatherless in the world. My grandmother gets a job as a receptionist at a medical clinic just to try to put these kids through high school, keep clothes on their back, food at the table. She does this remarkable job of sticking with this, gets all three kids successfully through college. But at this point in her life, she doesn't have like two nickels to rub together. Deception creating harm. Um, if you look at churches, I would argue that words have been used greatly in churches to split people apart. More than like a preacher being really bad at preaching, more than a church not having a great youth ministry, more than leadership making a decision you don't agree with. Gossip and especially lying destroy a church. Uh, Sam Storms says this, that it's hard to imagine a more destructive force in the body of Christ than lying. Virtually everything else we do to and against one another can be healed, but deliberate, conscious, premeditated deception is perhaps the most devastating of all. And as you read the New Testament, it says this over and over again, don't lie to one another, don't deceive one another, be careful with your speech. You can see why David feels so strongly about deception. I mean, I can kind of see where he's coming from when he's like, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Now, 
don't read too far into that, okay? I don't think that David actually wanted to go around with a sword and chop off lips of people. We, we get this idea of hyperbole, right? It's like the last time that you were kind of frustrated with someone and you said, I hope they take a long walk off a short pier. I hope you didn't mean that, really. But he's feeling this, right? He's seeing the destructiveness the boastful arrogance, the effect of words. And words have been used powerfully in this world. Uh, Karl Marx famously said this, give me 26 ledge soldiers and I'll conquer the world. The soldiers that he's referring to is the alphabet. And, and we know that Karl Marx mobilized millions of people through words. Now, you could get pretty depressed when you think about that, but what we have as a balancing point in the scripture is those words are called boastful because ultimately they're empty. No one has the real power to conquer the whole world or to, you know, manipulate people to do whatever they want. You can look at history time and time again, and leaders rise up, and, and they use their words, and they powerfully sway some, but ultimately, God is always in control of history. And this is where David turns now. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 is a prophecy from the Lord. It says, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. And then David reflects on this promise in verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Once again, in Psalms 1 through 12, David turns to the character of God. If you're thinking through the hiking analogy, the character of God is like the, the guide cues that you get as you're hiking. You know, when you're hiking and you see like white markings on trees along the way, keep heading this direction, this is how you get to the top, this is how you get back home. The character of God is those hiking guide signs. Are you feeling anxious? Look to God. Are you feeling fearful? Look to God. Has depression come upon you? Or is your outlook extremely pessimistic? Are you feeling like you're the last person standing over and over and over again? Psalms 1 through 12, look to God, look to his character. David hears this promise in verse 5 where the Lord says, I will keep my people safe. I'm looking out for the weak. And then he responds to that with his statement, this image of silver being purified. The words of the Lord are pure words. In other words, you can trust the promise because there's something about who God is that gives you the ability to know and bank on it and count on it. And now we come to this idea of truth. And I want us to see that we can see two dimensions about truth from the text. The first thing I want you to see is this, that the foundation of truth is God's character. 
In fact, Scripture tells us that God is the God of truth. If you look at Isaiah 65, verse 16, the text says, He who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. When you go into the New Testament, you get into the book of Hebrews, you have to remember in Hebrews, that author is writing to a bunch of ragtag believers who have been persecuted, beaten down. They're wondering, can I even continue to endure in the faith? It is so gloomy, so pessimistic. And the author, again, he goes right to the foundational character of God, and he makes this point about God. God has given us both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we can have confidence or we can flee to him for refuge and have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. Now think about God for a moment. And sometimes we ask the question, well, is there anything that's impossible for God? And I want to say to you this morning, the answer is yes, there are things that are impossible for God to do. Uh, God can't commit a logical contradiction. So God can't create a rock that is too big for God to lift, right? That's a logical contradiction. God is not a God of contradictions. The other thing that we see about God is God cannot deviate from his character. He can never lie. Why? Because truth is at the foundation of his character. Think about why that's so helpful for you as a believer. If God could lie, what could you take serious from the scriptures? If God made a promise to you, could you ever like lean into the promise? And I mean really lean into it when things are getting tough course not. Because always in the back of your mind, you would be wondering, what if he changes his mind on this one? But scripture says his mind's unchanged. It's impossible for him to lie. The other thing I want you to see about truth is that truth is beautiful. Let's go back to this idea of silver. Now, silver is utilized as an analogy here because it is inherently pure when it has gone through the purification process. But take a look at this silver on the screen. The other thing that we see about silver is when it's gone through the process of bu- uh, purification, it, it becomes inherently beautiful. That's why we adorn ourselves with precious metals. They are beautiful because they have become purified. And David, as he's thinking about the truth, uses imagery that is beautiful. He's inspired by God's truth. He finds it so appealing. I actually read an article this week by um, a writer for the Gospel Coalition. His name's Trevin Wax. And as I was reading through the article, I couldn't help but think about how deception and truth are often brought to us in packages. And sometimes deception is just so beautifully packaged, right? Oh, if you just do these things, your life will work out perfect for you. 
It'll go so well for you. And you look at the gold package, and then you kind of like go down that road, and you, you unravel it all, and you get into the box, and you're like, oh, this is not what I thought it was. It didn't go well for me at all. Sometimes, on the other hand, truth can be wrapped by believers in like newspaper. We present like these ideas about God's character and theology and truth, and we just treat them as wooden propositions. This morning, we are going to talk about the Trinity. Here's proposition number one. Here's proposition number two about the Trinity. Number three, and then we get to like number five, and someone in the fifth row is snoring out loud by this point. What if we made it beautiful? What if we talked about the Trinity being so special and precious because the God of the universe has coexisted in perfect relationship, a relationship that is so satisfying within himself that he doesn't need anything outside of himself. And by virtue of creating us and then by virtue of sending the Son of God into the world to die for us, this God who experiences blissful relationship has invited you into the relationship. Deception can be packaged beautifully, but inherently it's ugly when you get down beneath the surface. But when you compare the God of the universe to lies, he shines brilliantly. He's never unappealing. C.S. Lewis was giving this advice to a group of writing students that were working with him, and he said to the, writing, uh, to the students, he said, you need to always vividly teach the truth. Don't just try to wow people with your words. Don't multiply adjectives. And I've got to tell you, I've read some books where it was very apparent that the author wanted to wow me with his or her vocabulary. And you're like, this is so tedious. Like, I'm trying to engage this and enjoy the content, but it's really all about you and your craftiness and not the ideas that you're expressing. Lewis said, listen, Don't do that. Instead, show people the beauty of the truth. And a lot of times, the beauty of truth is presented in story form. And he practiced what he preached. So instead of writing a whole treatise about Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, he tells us a story about a lion named Aslan who dies for a traitor named Edmund. Of course, the lion Aslan represents Jesus, and Edmund represents you and I. Trevin Wax says this, true information without any inspiration leads to dead orthodoxy. Inspiration without true information leads to heresy. So we come to the end of the hike with the last two verses. And David ends in this place of mystery for us. And, you know, when you're thinking about God and you're thinking about the character of God, I think that is actually a good place to leave us. There is a tension that he presents. Look at these verses. Verses 7 and 8. You, O Lord, will keep them. 
you will guard us from this, gener- from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of men. So I hope you can see the tension in these two verses. You, O Lord, will keep them. That's one side of the tension. And then verse 8, on every side, the wicked prowl. Now, people have been asking the question from the time that we started putting pen to paper, how is it that God could be good and powerful and yet evil exists in the world? Another way that the question is framed is, why do people suffer? Why do bad things happen in the world? And I'm a believer, and of course, I want to arrive at a faithful conclusion when it comes to God and who he is and how the world works. And as people have been processing this for years, they've come to different conclusions and solutions. I was actually just watching a show that was featuring the Greek pantheon of gods, and the main character in the show was a demigod, a half-son of Zeus. And his mother is brutally murdered before his eyes, and he gets this opportunity to bring his case before Zeus. And he says to Zeus, how could you let her die? You know what Zeus says? He says, son, there's something you need to know about us. Sometimes things happen that we feel powerless as they happen. We're flawed just like you. Francis Schaeffer was reflecting on like the Greco-Roman world and he said that the problem with their image of God was that they just made people bigger with more powers. So God is a human that struggles with all the same problems that we do but has a little more power in the world. This gives us this idea then, the Greek mindset of, okay, well, well, God must be good, but sometimes things happen outside of his control, and, and he doesn't have the power to correct those things. And I've got to tell you that that is a very dissatisfying conclusion to arrive at when it comes to God. Why? Because then evil never gets fully dealt with. It exists in the world and continues to exist in the world and it exists in you and me. The other side of the coin, though, is that some people would say, well, mm, God is all-powerful, but he just chooses to let evil exist because he's not all good. Now, you have to understand something about logic, Logic is how we arrive at reasonable conclusions, and in logic, there is a fallacy called an either-or fallacy. It's when you kind of set up a dilemma and you say, it's either this or it's that. And I want to tell you that Scripture says that either God being good or God being all-powerful is a false dilemma, because the Bible presents and says that two things can be true at the same time. On one end, we're shown a God who is faultless in his character, who is all-powerful, who is all-good. And the other end, we're also shown that this God has allowed evil to exist in the world. So why? I suggest that the biblical answer that we're shown is that God 
allows evil to exist for a season because he can bring about a greater good by allowing evil to exist for that season. We're actually given this answer in the scriptures in the first book of the Bible, in the story of Joseph. Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, goes through a horrible period of his life where he's first a slave and then he's imprisoned and then somehow God elevates Joseph to being one of the top officials in all of Egypt. And he's brought back to his brothers later in life and they're afraid after their father Jacob died that Joseph's going to get even with them because that's this world, right? You do something to me, I do something to you. And Joseph gives them this grand theological statement. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We get a similar thought process in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This truth that we're looking at here is why you can forgive someone who has deeply wronged you in this world. See, the solution has been, well, evil exists because God's not powerful enough, but that's the wrong conclusion. God is more powerful. You need a more powerful God for evil to exist in the world and for good to come about because God rules over the evil. He can even overrule the evil as we see here in this text. And if someone has wronged me, if God is not more powerful, then there's nothing that I can ever do to have that wrong overruled into good. But in a world where God is all-powerful and in control and able to overrule, he can take the wicked, terrible things that have happened to me in this world, and he can turn them into good. Last week, we were hearing from Jen and Marcia as they were sharing about how God inspired them to get into this issue of human trafficking and start Treasured Life. And Marcia referred to the story of Jasmine Grace. And I couldn't help but think of how God overruled in her life. And think about it. If you don't know her story, she was trafficked for years by an evil man, brutalized by this man. And in a world where God can't overrule, that's the end of the story. And it's a terrible story. But God elevates her. He brings her out of that miserable situation and he empowers her. And she becomes a voice for the voiceless. She's able to provide safe housing for those who are afraid to leave the world of trafficking because they have nowhere to go. That's God overruling. That's God stepping in and saying, yes, evil is here, but I'm going to bring about more good as a result of that. Listen. In the meantime, as we think about these truths and the character of God, we got to keep living in this mucky world. And the Psalms are asking us the question, are you ready to live beyond the muck? 
Do you want to lift your head up? Do you want to see that there's more than just what you see from the right and the left perspective? Do you want to get up to the peak and look out? And here's the cues they're giving us. The Psalms are saying, trust that God's your refuge. Turn to him in prayer with your problems. Take your cues from him because of his character. And most of all, as we saw last week in the Psalms, remember that God is the goal. Not what you get from God, but God himself, relationship with him. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this hike that we've been on in the Psalms. And we have covered some deep waters if we've made our way through the scriptures, uh, not just today, Lord, but for 12 weeks. And we're thankful that ultimately scripture over and over and over again points to you, the God of the word. And Lord, it's in your character, the foundation of your character, truth, your holiness, your love, your justice, that we see that you are truly a God that we can take refuge in and a God that we can look forward to being in relationship with. And Lord, we know that it's because of who you are that we can live beyond the muck in this world. We thank you most of all for reaching into this muck by sending your son Jesus into this world to die in our place and to welcome us into your family. So we just pray, Lord, that as we navigate these water, uh, this mucky world, that you would be our prize, that you would be our focus, that we would ever look to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.